Hello and welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Hello and welcome to Podcast 24. I'm Dave Niven and you're very welcome to join me today. Now you can uh, tweet me on at Dave Niven. You can look at uh, the socialworldpodcast.com and you can download a whole series of these podcasts on iTunes as well as getting them from Podfeed, Stitcher, and Spreaker. So wherever you get them from, you're welcome. Now this week has been an amazing week for podcasting because uh, I was at the first event last Saturday in London of the UK Podcasters, and we formed a group that's about 20 to 30 people, and it was really fascinating to be with people who are as committed as I am to podcasting because as far as I'm concerned, podcasting is the the frontier, if you like, of broadcasting. And uh, it's just fantastic to be involved and to meet the enthusiastic people that um, we met on Saturday. And that can be seen, that event can be talked about on the UKpodcasters.com. And I've got to thank Mike and Isabella Russell at Music Radio Creative for organising and hosting the event. It was a terrific night, and uh, many thanks to everybody who's involved, and uh, I very much look forward to... uh, talking with, interviewing, and possibly being interviewed by all of those other people who've got regular podcasts in the UK. Now, stepping out of the UK also this week, I was a guest of Jonathan Singer on the Social Work podcast in Philadelphia. And Jonathan's a very established podcaster now, and he's been a guest on my show. So it was lovely to be a guest on his show and talk about the differences in social work education between the United States and the United Kingdom, and looking at the way that social workers become involved, how they train, and what their duties are, as well as what the public actually perceive them to be, which is fascinating. And Jonathan just emailed me the other day there just to say that on the two days following the podcast, it received such interest that at least 1,300 downloads of it were achieved. So well done, Jonathan. Thanks very much. And I look forward to having you back on my show again in the not too distant future. Now, today, two items are going to be on the podcast. Firstly, I'm going to interview Sandra Meadows. Now, Sandra is the chief executive officer of what they call PAYTU, P-E-Y-T-U, which is the Play and Early Years Training Unit, based here in Bristol in the southwest of England. And Sandra is an excellent advocate for the social care sector and is enormously experienced at running a company that provides a full range of training for that sector. So looking forward to interviewing Sandra. And then following that, I just want to do a short bit because on Wednesday the 2nd of April, it was World Autism Day. And that, to my mind, is a marvelous uh, awareness-raising opportunity for what is effectively uh, an enormous issue within our society is understanding autism, understanding those those people who've been diagnosed on the autistic spectrum disorder. And there are about 700,000 of them in the UK. So I'd very much like just to say a few things about that and bring your attention to it in our small way. So apart from that, many thanks for listening. And here we go. Well, hello. I've got Sandra Trotman-Meadows with me today, 
and I'm delighted she could join me. She's the Chief Executive Officer of PAYTU, that's the P-E-Y-T-U, the Play and Early Years Training Unit. Now, it's a charity based in Bristol, offering training and consultancy to the children and young people's workforce, the landscape, if you like, of the social care sector. Now, Sandra herself's a former voluntary sector advocate to the Bristol Safeguarding Children Board, and she's a chair, she was a chair of the, of the Safeguarding Board Training Subcommittee. Now, before that, she served on the Children and Young People's Outcomes Board and the Bristol Strategic Workforce Group. So she's been all over the kind of influential committees around this to do with that subject matter. And she's currently a governor at the City of Bristol College and she's a representative on Bristol Women's Commission. Welcome, Sandra. Hello, thank you. Um, now, I've got here a note that you've lobbied locally and nationally on behalf of Children's Workforce and you do support the drive towards increased professionalism and the recognition of skills and qualifications within that workforce. How, how, how have you seen it changed over the years? How have you seen the sort of landscape change for that workforce over the years? Because traditionally they were not hugely qualified yeah. As, a, as a group, generally speaking. Mm. But maybe if you could just say who, what kind of profession, what kind of jobs make up that group and what changes have you seen over the years, just as a sort of a backdrop here? I think probably uh, the greatest change has probably been, certainly under the last government as well, within the early years sector, um, to an extent, well, to quite a large extent actually, there's increased regulation um, whether or not you feel it is right or appropriate, it is there. Um, along with the regulation comes a need for performance and practice which reflects uh, the need to maintain standards, certainly within safeguarding. All sorts of things have changed, as you know, after Monroe. Um, so certainly in early years, there's been quite a lot of change, and actually the change is still going on. Um, things around Ofsted and what they're looking for, um, consistency in inspections, that sort of thing. Um, and I know that, you know, Michael Gove does have some quite specific ideas. The Secretary of State for Education. Sec absolutely. As to um, what should be happening within, shall we say, childcare and early years. Another part of the sector which has largely gone unrecognised, actually, for quite a long time is what we call the play sector. Okay. Now, well supported under the previous government, not really recognised under the current government, which is a great shame because a lot of people had worked very hard uh, to lobby for recognition. And when we're talking about play, we're talking about what where children go when they're not in education and they're not in a nursery. So all of these after-school clubs, and in fact these days we have breakfast clubs, all those sorts of places, they have to be staffed by people and we want to make sure that those people are suitably trained and qualified to work with our children during mm. their leisure time. Mm. It's logical. Mm. Um, so we continue to fight for the play sector. Um, Okay, I mean, I, having sort of set out that and me given the bare bones of your experience, if you like, at the beginning there, just let's try and marry the two for a sec if we could and say, 
how you came about to be involved in this work. I mean, uh, was it a zigzag process or was it a very clear as an arrow? Uh, no. How did it all, happen? Not at all. I think prior to working at Pay2, I'd been working in um, IT recruitment of all things, oh, really? which was fairly hilarious because I'm, I'm not that way-minded. I'm neither IT <laughs> proficient or particularly interested in sales. Um, but I, I, it was the second time I had gone into the corporate world. I used to work at Unilever in Bristol for quite a few years. And really over the years, it became apparent to me that I, my heart was really in the voluntary or charity sector because I need to feel passionate about what I'm doing day to day. Uh, so a role came up at Pay2 and uh, we were very small then and I thought you know perfect I'll go along there do what I can it'll be an easy job because I can do it and then you know as is my way gradually it was a case of well I could do that and I could do that as well and I could do that why don't I just do it all <laughs> so um, we built the staff team people came people left and we ended up where we are today my interest in workforce development probably stems from a sense of frustration to be honest say a bit more um it's a frustration that in other parts of europe in other parts of the world being someone who works with children or cares for children is really a profession which has a lot of weight and value it, what's frustrating about our society here is that it is often seen as the thing you do when you can't do anything else so it was that sense of frustration about that that really got me starting to do all these other bits of work around workforce development. Okay, Sandra. Now, you've outlined an awful lot of what, um, what you've done so far, mm -hmm. and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But talk about Pay2 and talk about Sandra, because obviously you've been with Pay2 some considerable time now and you've established yourself there, you've put your mark on it. <laughs> um, what do you see as the future for Pay2 and then maybe let's go on to a little bit about what you see as the future for yourself, particular personal uh, mm. targets that you've got. So, mm. do you okay. want to say a little bit about yeah. both? Yeah, okay. Um, well, Peter will conquer the world, of course, and um, develop all sorts of ways to encourage world peace. I think for the organisation, I mean, we've, I've been there for 13 years now, it's the longest I've been at any organisation. Um, so, clearly, it's got under my skin which, you know, I always tried to avoid that. <laughs> Having been redundant several times in my career, I kind of learned that, you know, you can't get too attached. And then this job came up and I got very attached. In any case, the future for Peitu, I think, is more growth, more development. There are untapped um, bits of the market for us, places we haven't gone yet. Certainly, the development of our consultancy and um, guide, information and guidance services would be great. Um, I think with a loss of guidance services for young people at Connections and certainly within schools, etc., I think there's a, a bit of a gap. And actually, there's, it's not so much the gap in terms of business, it's the need. Where do people go? Where do young people go to get information and guidance about their career options? And we want to encourage them to think of um, working with children as a really good career with great prospects. Mm. Um, 
but that message isn't getting across. It's still sort of seen as, unless you want to go into something like social work, if you want to go into the childcare or early years element, it's still not you know seen as a great thing to do, unfortunately, generally. So I think for pay to, we continue um, to grow. Um, we continue to develop our services. Uh, I would like us to work with more parts of the children's workforce. I'm really interested in what you might call the wider children's workforce, which for me is um, those occupations who think they're not working with children and young people, but they are. Um, and we did an interesting bit of work a few years back with um, park keepers. That was hilarious. <laughs> is it, I won't say where in the country these park keepers were, um, but they were fairly resistant to what we were trying to do with them and wanted nothing to do with young people, which is great. I love a challenge. <laughs> Following the training, they had a whole new healthy respect for their engagement with young people and actually saw how both themselves and the young people using their parks and estates could benefit from that relationship. It's great. We've also done some work with police community support officers who are very much about the policing, but forgetting that actually their interaction with young people in local communities makes a vast difference to things like antisocial behaviour. So that was a, a great success. So when I say diversifying things for pay to, I'm, I'm kind of more interested in that end of things. Who should we be talking to? Who really impacts on children's lives? Mm. Not being recognised as doing so at the moment, but actually would have a huge influence on the life of a young person if it went particularly right or even if it went particularly wrong. So, I mean, Peter is a charity, we, mm. we know that. And, and amongst its sort of uh, constitution, I mean, education is obviously yes. something that's quite important because what you've just been describing there is broadening. Yes. Your, your, if you like, your offering yes. of, of educative material and educative kind of help yes. to a whole range of people within the community. Mm, Is mm. that fair? Yes, 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 okay. yeah. And I think it's, um, you know, there's quite a lot of work that can be done with parents and carers as well. You mm. know, that, that, that thankfully things have already started to shift in that area and we do see more parenting type programs um, for me it's about getting the practitioners working better with parents and carers and families not forgetting that every child has a family that sort of thing so more work in that area well just let me take you back just for a second because although pay is evolving as mm. you've said mm. i mean up to now or up to fairly recently some of the more traditional elements that you were your core elements if you like working mm. with the early years community mm. the status of early years mm. uh, workers in the community would you like to just say about how that's changed over say the last mm. 10 years well thankfully it has improved massively massively with the development of things um, such as the the early years professional which is status a few years back that you could gain, with now the move to, in a way, renaming um, early years professionals as um, early years educators, moves a little bit more towards the sort of pedagogical model, doesn't it? That kind of, you know, that's what we're doing here, we're educating. Um, so I think that certainly within early years settings, so when I say settings, I mean a nursery or a children's centre, status has increased. 
You have to be careful with that, though, and not assume that all roles within a nursery or children's centre, you know, have some sort of kudos now, because, you know, you still get nursery nurse, perhaps a junior nursery nurse. And um, one of the conundrums that you have there is that sometimes the more junior people are given things like, let's say, for instance, the baby room to manage. But in actual fact, it should be the most experienced person. So, you know, things like that still need to change, but we have come a long way. Um, certainly in childminding, that's another area. Previously seen as, you know, someone who looks after children at home. Not necessarily as heavily regulated. Things have changed there. We're actually doing a programme now working with childminders. They have business support and all sorts of things because they are running businesses from home. And they are in a closed environment, looking after children. So, you know, the, the whole thing about safeguarding and, and all that sort of thing, rather than needing to do less because it's in the home, you know, I have a view that actually you need to be more careful. You're on your own, in a house, you know, that sort of thing. So um, th there've been some really good changes. I mean, even within the play sector, things have changed. You know, we've got more roles now, you know, you get Fortunately, there are still some local authorities with play officers. It took quite a battering with the change of government um, and austerity measures, but there are still some quite senior roles for people looking at play and children's leisure time activity. I take it you'd encourage that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you have um, a sort of, sounds a little bit sort of, too structured, but if you have some sort of hierarchy attached to a profession, you've got somewhere to go. If you start as a play worker, let's face it, you're working probably three hours a day for not very much money, but you're passionate about what you're doing. We want you to have somewhere to go. You know, whether it's here in this country, over in America, it doesn't matter where you are, it's a profession. You are working directly with children, young people, in probably what's quite a vulnerable time for them it's their leisure time mm. you know it's the time when they express themselves and they're using their imagination and we really want you know kind of the best people to be with them well, at that course. time yeah. well, listen you mentioned that I mean that's quite an interesting part you mentioned the, something to do you know an international comparison or whatever mm. there, or an international kind of um, shout out you did as far as America was concerned mm. because obviously I mean this broadcast goes out to many countries mm. um and I didn't know, is that something that you would advocate is actually looking at experience of other countries and Absolutely. trying to bring it to here, bring Absolutely. it to this country? I unfortunately can't remember the name of the organisation doing this, but I know through um, speaking to a colleague, there is actually a fantastic play project in um, a part of America, which is doing all sorts of things with the outdoor environment. And of course, we have now in Bristol, a um, we've developed um, a natural play space. Um, I'll tell you an interesting story about that in a second. But in America, they, they have done so much more. But it's really because they don't see it necessarily as what we call play. They might call it something else. So but actually, the principles are all the same. Yeah, the principles are all the same. But well, it's let's, interesting. Let's it, just ask our, any listeners out there in America, because we've got quite a lot in America. Yeah. If they've got projects like this, 
Let us know about them, if you would, and I'll pass them on to Sandra. That would be fantastic. It'd be lovely to highlight them, actually, mm. in our mm. publication. Well, look, just for the moment then, let's talk about Sandra Trotman Meadows. <laughs> Um, let's talk about you just a little bit because mm. I mean you're you're telling us things you're passionate about. You're telling us about Peter. You're telling us about the the various changes in the landscape that you've seen. Having experienced all of that, and here you are now sitting here. I mean, ideally, what would you like to look at? What what sort of things have really stimulated your interest recently? The, the, what directions do you feel that you would like to go in and and put all that experience you've got to good use? One of the things I've done um, for quite a few years is be an advocate for the voluntary sector, which basically means that on these boards and various things that I do, I'm sort of banging the drum for recognition for the voluntary sector, because the voluntary sector actually, even in Bristol, delivers a lot of services on behalf of the local authority. Um, so they were service providers come a long way from the you know the bad old days where it was someone in a hut and you know um, we're very professional now and um, my role as an advocate was really to make sure that statutory services so we're talking about local authority health police all those sorts of services when they're thinking strategically about the development of services or anything within the community, they consider how they could work with the voluntary sector to do that. So my role was to keep saying, actually, that's not going to work with the voluntary sector and with the services that we provide. Let's reshape it. Let's look at it again. Um, I love this sector. I think a lot of amazing things go on there. And I would really like to work with in the future, for me personally, um, be, given that I'm the business end of our organisation pay to, is really work with other voluntary sector groups to bring them up in terms of their business development and systems and all that sort of thing, and really sort of an advisory consultancy role. Well, let's drill down to that a little bit. Okay. okay. Um, looking at the big picture, if you like, strategically. Mm. Mm. Would you, what do you think about the argument that in this country we rely too much on the voluntary sector and the charitable sector to actually deliver basic services to the population? Mm. Should, should the balance be about what it is? Should the government actually do more centrally? Should far more be devolved to the voluntary sector? I mean, where do you think we sit in terms of the balance at the moment? I suppose, for me, the only important thing is that you find the right people with the right talent to do what needs to be done. It so happens that in Bristol, a lot of our services, the frontline services, especially services, drugs and alcohols, for instance, um, um, dealing with young people who are on the edge of, you know, going into crime, that sort of thing. A lot of that work is just naturally done by voluntary sector groups. They start as support groups and they develop into businesses. Talking about crime just for a second, we're going to leave the, the recording on, folks, but you can hear the police sirens in the background. <laughs> and I do assure you we're not in the middle of a middle of a riot or something like that. It's just that there seems to be a rather noisy couple of police cars going by. But yeah. that's interesting. It shows that the world is alive out there. Yes, we are in a... Yes, we are. City. Yeah, and um, I think that um, I think that the, the balance the balance 
is probably pretty good at the moment. I know that some people feel that with certainly <laughs> what we're getting louder with austerity and with the, the severe cuts that local authorities and central government have made, um, services have gone. Mm. What's crazy in a way is that the services have just gone. It's not that they're not needed, they're still needed. And quite often quite often that's where the voluntary sector picks up the slack. Now, a lot of services you just mentioned that there have disappeared. And a lot have been cut because um, the local governments had to make huge cuts. Mm. And effectively, um, percentages in, in very high numbers mm. have been sliced off mm. budgets and allocations to charities, mm. to voluntary sector organisations. And so an awful lot of the fundamental basic work in our society is really under threat, yes. or so it seems. Yes, we stand to lose a and lot. that's why it made me ask the question, yeah. really, because yes, we're in a time of austerity. Mm. Yes, we're in a time of reduction mm. of funding. Mm. And so the, the charitable sector, pay to being one of them, mm. has to go looking outside mm. for funding in all sorts of different ways, and you're competing mm. against other people would say equally worthy mm. causes, mm. which mm. we all know about. Mm. It's not the nicest setup for the customer, no. for the person receiving service to be uncertain as to whether the only place that would actually be funded to offer a decent service to them might not be able to because of funding cuts. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking, how does that play it? on your mind sometimes? Yeah, it is shocking. And I think that, um, I suppose there's two schools of thought. One is that the voluntary sector stands to gain quite a lot from um, budget cuts within local councils. Because if the, if the local councils can't deliver the services and the need is still there, then actually um, the voluntary sector, they're going to have to commission those services and the voluntary sector stands a good chance of being able to pick up those contracts. So where services aren't cut, where they're diminished, or where the local authority says we can no longer do this, but we can commission it, the voluntary sector stands to gain. Now, the other school of thought is, as you rightly pointed out, the local council might say, we have no money, we cannot provide this even on a commissioned basis, the service has to go. That is much tougher, because quite often for these specialist groups, there's nowhere else to go for the funding, you might have a whole booklet full of trusts and other organisations you, you can go to for, for funding, but every other organisation is doing the same thing. And some of them are very tight on what they will fund and what they won't fund. So that's pretty difficult. I have in the recent past been to a, a budget consultation um, about the Bristol Mayor's budget proposals. And we had an extraordinary discussion whereby um, the table the people I, I sat with looked at the budget proposals and said, well, hang on a minute, we're cutting services uh, for disabled people to enable them to be able to have free transport, but we're keeping all of the arts funding. That's interesting. Mm. So, you know, this was raised and the mayor's response, you know, forgive me if I've, you know, <laughs> truncated it a bit too much. The mayor's response was that Arts in Bristol brings income to the city. Shocking. 
it, you know, that's an income stream for the city. We can't cut that because actually it brings a lot of wealth to us. Disabled people don't bring income. Oh, isn't that uncomfortable? Mm. Isn't that uncomfortable? He didn't say that. But, you know, certainly the discussion around our table was that it is really uncomfortable to look at a budget proposal where you're keeping everything that's going to museums and all the art galleries and all the rest of it on the one hand, but you can't provide a, a bus service for disabled citizens. Ouch! Okay. Good point. <laughs> Difficult times. Listen, a, very, a quick final question. Indeed. Right. Um, Digital age, <laughs> what we live in, yes, and the developments accordingly. You know all the different platforms that there are now for kind of uh, communication and for um, broadcasting, like mm. this one and so forth. Mm. Um, service delivery. Mm. I mean, I, I did a lecture recently looking at um, the changes in service delivery in a digital age, mm. and I did talk a little bit about things that were in if you like, pay to his traditional sector, mm. right? Yeah. To do with smart houses or to do mm. with the developments for people who've got profound disability or mm. looking at monitoring uh, institutional units or day nurseries or centres or whatever. Mm. That, and the whole kind of um, um, developmental th side of it, whether it's apps mm. or whether it's actual technology or whether it's Skype mm. uh, to actually communicate with your clients or whatever. Have you got a view about the um, the rise of this the, 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 this new frontier, if you like, mm. and how it would impact <laughs> on services that you've discussed? I, I suppose I have definitely got a view. Um, I'm afraid it's coming from different places. I've got I've got my professional head on. I'm also the mother of a 16 year old lad. Um, so technology and the, and the rise of of the development of things like you know Facebook and Snapchat and all of these things which you know are are out there on the one hand frustrates me enormously because um, you know, I'm always looking for the value in these things <laughs> I'm always frustrated by the amount of distraction that they can cause you know I'm, I'm unfortunately old enough to remember a time when they didn't exist and we might pick a book up. I know that makes me sound really old, but there we are. On the other hand, in business, I'm really excited by some of the developments. I'm really excited, you know, we, we use um, an e-portfolio system. We run some qualification courses and we use an e-portfolio system. I got very excited at the prospect of our learners being able to check their progress on their smartphones. How great is that? You don't actually have to be at a computer, you can just do it on your phone, love that. We really, I think actually, we were one of the first charities um, in our sector to um, develop online um, booking, um, taking payments by card. There's still quite a few of them out there that you have to send a check to. Um, so we get quite excited internally about, about those developments. Um, but on a personal front, you know, I'm, I've just got rid of a particular type of phone, which begins with an I, because it felt like I was feeding a pet. I couldn't stand the thing. Every five minutes it wanted to talk to me and it wanted me to do this and do that. And I was like, oh, please, you're just a phone. So Sandra won't be dictated to by a telephone. No, I will not. <laughs> Sandra, <laughs> thanks ever so much for joining us today, all right? It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks to Sandra Meadows for that interview. Interesting stuff.
Now, what I wanted to do here is just a little bit of um, alerting of people, awareness raising, if you like, uh, because the 2nd of April is, was World Autism Day. And I just want to give you some ideas about autism and some places to look, see where you can actually help or alternatively where you can find out far more about it. Now, let's have a look at some websites. There's the uh, National Autistic Society, which is autism.org.uk. And in their front page, they talk about autism being, as we know, a lifelong developmental disability affecting how people communicate with and relate to other people, and really how people make sense of the world around them. And they emphasize the fact that it's a spectrum condition, which means that everybody shares certain difficulties, but it's the condition affects them in completely different ways sometimes. And at the far end of the autistic spectrum is what's called Asperger's syndrome. Syndrome. People are often of uh, average or above average intelligence, who may have fewer problems with some things, but really still have difficulties processing language, understanding the world around them completely. Now, as well as that, we've got uh, mencap.org.uk, who've got some very good stuff about autism there, and uh, awareness raising, as well as good knowledge. And we've got somewhere called Humans Not Robots, which is uh, a friendly classroom it's advertised as for ASD, the Autism Spectrum Disorder. And it uh, erases awareness of some of the needs and difficulties presented by students who have autism and how it affects their communication, how it affects their social life and how it affects their thinking skills. And so for those who are actually working with students who are on the autistic spectrum, there are some strategies, catch-all if you like, about starting lessons and how you go about that. Short, fun, factual activities. They give an immediate structure because usually with people who have um, autism, um, the idea of structure, the idea of predictability, the idea of sameness, the idea of um, consistency, all are hugely important. And just even a small variation can throw people into great nervousness and uh, dis distress. So then we've just got to, I think, do much more reading. We, we've got to realize that of the millions of people around the world who were affected by this condition, there are at least 700,000 in the United Kingdom. And the most important thing is getting early diagnosis, early intervention, early support, and an awareness of the fact that autism is not something that sets people apart. It should be something that's recognized, worked with, have understanding of, and, and it is enveloped into the general community. Because otherwise we just continue to, to, real, to recognize or think of autistic people as somehow so different that they're marginalized. And that's a great shame. Now, I want to draw your attention a little bit to uh, the conference we've got coming up. Uh, as I say, this podcast it's on the, the next day, uh, the 5th of, uh, the, the 4th of April. And it's in Bristol. It's at Ashton Court. It's uh, on This Is My Childhood. There will be no other. It's to do with 
early years. It's to do with very young children who've been traumatized. And it follows a lead from UNICEF on the first 1001 days of a child's life, the very early times, and the trauma that can affect these very young children if they are subject to what is being kind of known in shorthand as the toxic trio. That's domestic violence, substance abuse, or mental health issues within the family. And how you work with these very young children is often incredibly difficult as they don't necessarily have yet the emotional set that fully understands what's going on in the world around them. So it takes a degree of sophistication, a degree of patience, and a lot of understanding for the professionals who are actually then put up to work with these children and try and minimize the trauma that these uh, activities attract. So that conference is coming up with Dame Tessa Jowell, who takes a lead in Parliament on these matters in early years, kindly agreeing to come down and speak in Bristol, along with a whole range of other good professional experts. And so I hope that the now sold-out, packed-out conference can really derive some good knowledge from it, and good understanding techniques and understanding of the, the way that we should go about looking to work with these very young children. Apart from that, the media training that we're actually developing in David Niven Associates is now taking off and we're putting on monthly events at uh, our headquarters. So have a look at uh, www.socialworldpodcast.com and have a look at the courses that we've got on offer. So apart from that, it's been a heck of a week uh, with all the UK podcasters activity and that new start and that, that frontier spirit with me appearing on Jonathan Singer's Social Work podcast in Philadelphia, and with the interview I did with Sandra Meadows, with the World Autism Day on the 2nd of April, and with a conference that we've got coming up at Ashton Court. Busy week. Whatever happens, give us your reviews, please. Have a look on iTunes, have a look on Spreaker, have a look on um, podcasts, any, any of the other podcasting sites, apart from our, web, our website as well, have a look on. Leave some reviews on uh, SpeakPipe, which is that one-click service right beside the blogs and the podcasts. Look forward to hearing from you. Look forward to your ideas and your opinions. Many thanks for listening.